Welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast, where it's our goal to create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping the two professions better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. We talk about buildings, talk about building buildings, making buildings. Today's guest is Robbie Schwartz, known Robbie for quite a while. He's the founder of Build Tank and the Build Tank Podcast. And he's been involved in the areas of applied building science, resiliency, and sustainability, as well as energy efficiency and codes since the early 1990s, with a varied set of experience, including years working as a commercial fisherman in Alaska, traveling the world, and working in construction. He's got a great perspective. And now he's a consultant with production and custom builders, co-jurisdictions, private clients, Colorado Energy Office, amongst others. So I was on Robbie's Build Tank, Buildcast podcast a while ago and decided to return the favor for him. His podcast uses what he's learned about applied building science to affect meaningful change in projects in the construction industry. So we had a good time interviewing Robbie. This was one of those podcasts where we had both Eric Kaiser and myself doing the interviews. So you got kind of a little different perspective as we kind of dig into Robbie's brain and learn more about making sustainable building mainstream building. All right. Welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. I am one of the co-hosts today, Eric Kaiser, and with me, the other co-host, Bill Spohn. Yep, here I am. I'm Bill Spohn. Eric's working with me today, and we're pleased to welcome a friend of mine from oh, at least a decade or so, Robbie Schwartz. How you doing, Robbie? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here, and I invited Robbie on from one regard because I was at a conference. I was taking a walk in the evening at the hotel, and I was listening to his podcast. And I'm like, dang, why isn't he on my podcast? Why am I not on his? Robbie, take a couple minutes and give us your background and why you also have a podcast and what that's all about. I do not have a defined building background. I came to building as somebody who went through a remodel as a kid. My family bought a house up in the foothills outside of Denver, and it was basically a cabin that got renovated into a house. And then we did a massive gut rehab and addition on it. So that was kind of my first introduction to construction, living in the house while that happened when most people would have moved out of the house to do that. But my dad had this idea that he could figure out how to do anything. So during that process, we did have a builder who did it, but the electrician came one day and ripped out pretty much everything that he had installed and walked off the job. And my dad decided to become an electrician. He's a doctor and he wired the house and did all the electricity. But moving on into high school and college, construction became summer jobs. And then I actually have a degree in history and political science, but this environmental ethic, it was instilled. And I went into teaching and coming back out of teaching, trying to figure out what to do. And the choices at that time were environmental law or environmental policy. I couldn't see myself as a lawyer and I didn't really understand what environmental policy meant and what you would do with that. So I went back to my roots and I got a job with a builder. And at that time, the builder was a regional production builder and they're trying to figure out how to bring green building materials into a production building environment. 
And that was my job was to figure out how to bring exciting things like OSB and iJoyce and cellulose insulation and things that are pretty commonplace today, but weren't very commonplace at that time into a production building environment. And we were really lucky in Colorado, we had a program that was called SOCTEC. So it was, I'm trying to remember what SOCTEC meant. State of Colorado Technical Energy Assistance Program, something like that. And these guys who ultimately became my mentor, a guy named Steve Andrews, who I actually interviewed on my podcast, if anyone's interested, and an architect named Matt. And they would go around and do blower door tests for builders and begin this idea of performance-based building and what it actually meant to build a house that not only was aesthetically beautiful, but actually performed, was energy efficient, was comfortable, presumably more durable than the average house being bought out there. And so I got my introduction to building science through that. What was the time frame you're talking, the year? This was the early 90s. Like most people who work for production builders, you get laid off. So I got laid off and that's when energy ratings were starting to take off. And at that point, states were the providers for energy raters. And so the state of Colorado kicked off and the first energy rating class, I think in 93 or 94. And I joined that class and became an energy rater with the idea that I would do home inspections and energy ratings to bring the value of an energy efficient mortgage to the market. And unfortunately, realtors and mortgage lenders weren't on the same page as me. So that didn't happen. But I was willing to go anywhere in the state to help bring energy ratings forward and bring it to market. And that willingness, I think, helped me land my first builder, which was another regional production builder that ultimately got gobbled up by U.S. Homes. And I realized, I think, pretty early on that I didn't like working in the real estate side of things, the real estate transaction, because it always seemed to me that the realtor and the mortgage lending side of things, they're on this quest to close the project as soon as possible to get their commission. And they never understood that maybe lack of insulation in an attic was not the seller's responsibility, but was more of an opportunity for the buyer to wrap those upgrades into an energy efficient mortgage and give them the opportunity to put those costs into a mortgage that over a 30-year period of time and the value that you could get from that type of energy upgrade that could be wrapped into your mortgage there. And it's really sad to me that it's really never have taken off. Occasionally, I think in all the years I've been doing this, I've done one energy efficient mortgage. And it's really sad to me that that side of things hasn't taken off, which really pushes you towards new construction because the repeatability. And I struggle with not making what we do a commodity with these large builders, but we need that repeatability to be able to make a living. It's really hard to do the existing home market where you're marketing two individuals and getting one house at a time versus marketing to a company and doing a hundred houses of theirs over the course of a year. 
So building science, really, I caught on to building science and the ideas that that has and have become a building science geek. And luckily in Colorado, Dr. Joe Stiebrick winters here. I find myself stalking him sometimes because he'll give presentations in different parts of the state. I remember taking my family to Aspen and putting them in a hotel and then leaving them there and, and going to see Joe Stiebrick speak and whatnot. So that's really how I think I learned through application. I call myself an applied building scientist because I, I didn't study it per se in school, but going to conferences, listening to experts like Joe and trying to apply it in the field over the years, I feel like I'm a pretty good, at least I'm an opinionated applied building scientist. That's quite an arc there in touching a lot of points in the building science side. That sums up and gets you to where you're at now. What are you doing currently? I neglected to say that before this, when I became an energy raider, I had a good stint in a business that I created on my own called Build Right at that time. And I was doing 800 to 1,000 houses a year with two employees and a fellow energy raider in the state was about the same size and we were chasing each other around the state and also working under the state providership at that time. And we realized at the same time that in order to grow a company, it only made sense to become our own provider through the ResNet system. And so we left the state energy offices. I guess it wasn't the state energy office. It was called Eastar Colorado at that time, which was the state provider. And then we left that structure, which really was the demise of the state provider system because we were the largest raiders that were funding that organization. But by moving that money from being paying that money to the state for processing our ratings and other fees that we had to pay to them, we could shift that money to an employee and begin benefits and do all the other things that employers do and grow our businesses. So Steve Byers was my partner, and we ended up merging our companies in 2006 and created Energy Logic, and worked together for about 15 years. We grew that together to about 60 employees, and Energy Logic is still thriving as a energy rating company today. But I decided to move on. Really, the size of the company and the bureaucracy that a large company has ultimately didn't agree with me. So I created Build Tank. And like I was saying before, Build Tank, I call a practical building think tank. So it gives me the opportunity to get involved in projects that I think will help move our industry forward. And I define that by how do we take a sustainable, energy efficient, durable building to mainstream building? How do we make it not a niche project anymore, but uh, the mainstream way that things are being built. I know a little bit about ResNet, HERS rating. I do the Res Talk podcast. But for the listeners who are listening to this podcast, can you describe that hierarchy you talked about provider? I want to make sure that hierarchy and that concept is well understood here. Yeah. So ResNet is the governing body of the home energy rating world. And through NASIO, which is the National Association of State Energy Offices, and the Mortgage Industry Association, they created the Home Energy Rating Index system to 
do what's called an asset rating of a home. And an asset rating of a home is assessing the energy efficiency features of a home and scoring that or comparing the energy features of a home to what's called a reference home. And the reference home that's used currently in the rating system is a home that's built to the 2006 IECC. And if you built a home to that level of efficiency, it would score 100 on the scale. So when you're doing an asset rating, you're evaluating all the energy efficiency features of the house, and you're comparing the features of that house that you're rating to that same geometry of that house to that home if it was built to the 2006 IECC, and you're able to score it on that scale. And so ResNet developed that process in the early, I guess, 1995 was when ResNet was created. And the way that they did it, basically, they created the scoring system, but then they had to create a structure for providing the service out there that the energy rater would go out to the houses. So in order to certify an energy rater, they created what's called a provider structure, structure of their program. So ResNet oversees providers and providers ultimately certify energy raters who go out and are in the field looking at houses. So the ResNet, again, stands for the Residential Energy Services Network. They create the structure, the quality assurance, and they certify providers who, throughout the country, different providers provide the services of energy raters and, I guess, provide the infrastructure for energy raters to work under. So for the energy rater, they provide quality assurance for the energy rater. They provide access to the software modeling systems that energy raters use. They might provide marketing assistance. They might provide education opportunities and other things depending on the provider. And a provider might only provide for raters which would be raters that have independent businesses, or the other business model is that the energy raider and the provider are under one roof or under one business identity there. So that's the structure of the organization. Does that work? <laughs> that covers it. Yeah. Okay. That was a good description of it there. So I've always been curious, looking at the ResNet model, is there ever any conflicts? Do you ever find any conflicts in there between a rater and a provider, especially when they're under one roof? Was that ever a problem for you? Yeah, I don't think so. I guess I should say there could be, but I don't think there should be. And a lot of it revolves around the ethics of the people that are running the organization, ultimately. It's the same issue that we're running into right now with ResNet and energy raters wanting to get involved in more code compliance. And the jurisdictions have the option of approving a third party to go out and do inspections and testing in the community or in their jurisdiction in order to demonstrate uh, compliance with the code. But they are often reluctant to utilize energy raters because they feel like there's a conflict of interest because the rater is being paid by the builder to do that work and the jurisdiction isn't paying the builder or the rater to do that work. And so they feel like 
Raiders might have a conflict of interest, in essence, fudging the data, and that the House might not really be compliant, but they're fudging the data to make it compliant because they're beholden to the builder. So in the same way, when a Raider and a provider are under one roof, the provider is doing quality assurance on Raiders that are also employees of the providership. And there's some concern that there isn't enough- Separation, maybe? Yeah, separation, I guess, there to ensure that the integrity of the process is happening legitimately, in essence, there. So to me, it really comes down to the integrity of the industry, the integrity of really understanding the code of ethics that ResNet has put in place, really utilizing the standard disclosure forms that are required at the time each energy rating is used. So you're disclosing that relationship and where your fees are coming from and those types of things to the people that you're providing an energy rating index score to. And then also understanding the robust quality assurance that ResNet does on the providers. So ResNet does quality assurance on the providers and the providers do quality assurance on the raters. So as long as that structure is working and working well, it should reveal any possibility of fraud that might be happening there. And to be frank, there have been some cases of fraud, but I think it's been rooted out and those people have been decertified and their providerships have gone away. But I think as a whole, the system works pretty well. There are questions. And I know when I was with a larger providership, energy rating providership combination, we questioned some of our competitors. But we have to take it ultimately on face value that ResNed, as the overseer and provider of quality assurance across the board there, that they're doing their job right. And they will root it out if in reality it's happening there. Yeah, I've always been curious about how that worked because I've not worked much in that side of it. And you seem to have a much deeper understanding and very intimate understanding of that than I do, obviously. So it's very interesting to hear an inside view of how all that works and ties together and what happens because it is very important with something like that to have robust data and controlled data and make sure that we're not fudging numbers because the homeowners expect it. And that can make a big difference for the homeowner on energy bills, on comfort, things like that. And I think that going back to the code official part of that quality assurance or that conflict, what I really see as a perceived conflict, I think that regardless of where your fee is coming, I think what the real issue is understanding who you're working for and ultimately holds your certification in their hand. So if I do something fraudulent there, my career, my livelihood is in jeopardy because my certification can be taken away. In the same way that if I'm working as an approved third party in a particular jurisdiction, doing energy code type inspections or energy code type ratings on a house, that jurisdiction holds my livelihood in their hand, regardless of who's paying my fee, because they can simply say, you can no longer do work in my jurisdiction. You are no longer an approved third party. So I think that's what 
can take this perceived conflict out of the equation and help our industry grow into more code compliance type work. That's interesting because, yeah, I can definitely understand where having that money coming from the builder can make a lot of people think that there would be a conflict of interest there. And I've actually heard that complaint a lot and seeing some of the, even the pricing, and I don't like to get into pricing discussions, but seeing some of the pricing, some of the raters talk about doing work for really makes me wonder how long they're spending on a job and they're looking into it because it's like the HVAC world, the cheaper everything gets, it becomes a race to the bottom. That's a huge problem and a great point, but I think we're talking about two different things, ultimately. One is the commoditization of an energy rating service, which especially the large production builders are driving that commoditization. So they're not seeing, and part of it is because, I mean, the builder's not seeing the value that the rater's bringing forward. And the rater isn't doing a good enough job of demonstrating the value of their service there. And then the other side of the equation is, is the integrity of the inspection itself, regardless of who's paying for it there. I think that there potentially could be a question. And I know I've had that question as well. When you see a rater or a rating company going out and charging very little for their service, how can they actually be making money? How can they have a profitable company doing that? You think they must be cutting corners, but that ultimately that's the responsibility of an organization like ResNet to ferret out. Yeah. And make sure that everything that is coming through that process is good and accurate. Yeah. Well, that was an interesting turn. I was going to say, so turning to Build Tank and your activities now, you have a long menu of things you're involved with. Do you have like a service territory or a type of customer you work with? Yes and no. <laughs> in terms of service territory, it's primarily the Denver metro area and up into the foothills there. Although I have recently become a FIAS passive house raider and consultant. And in our market, the PHI version of Passive House seems to be more popular. So I want to do this project. So I'm willing to go about two hours into the mountains to be involved in a project there. So I would potentially go further on. I also, in terms of things that I'm involved with right now, again, as I evaluate things that I want to get involved with, I try to evaluate it from the perspective of a project that I think will help move our industry forward. And right now, I believe pretty strongly that energy code is one of those vehicles to do that. And I bristle at the notion that building to the energy code is the way to build the worst house that you're legally allowed to build. So because I believe that you are achieving a good home that's performing well, there, if you build to the energy code, I'm involved on a national level in the energy code development process. And then locally here, I'm part of a team that has been helping the city of Denver with their code adoption and amendments. We're beginning to work with the city of Boulder with their adoption. And then I work with our state energy office and our local utility in a lot of code education. And then I, since I left Energy Logic, 
I've been involved in two Department of Energy residential energy field studies in Colorado and New Mexico there. So a lot of code-related work is what I've been doing recently. That's an interesting side of the business to get into, or really the world of us to get into is code development and standards development. Personally, got to touch that a little bit recently, but can you go into that just a little bit and describe why somebody might want to get involved or touch on that if they think they can help make the codes better or improve things out in the field? I can tell you from my perspective that my frustration with code is that it can be interpreted in so many different ways, first of all. And second of all, that it doesn't work well for the people that are actually trying to implement the code. So that was why I got into code development on a national level. I'm not necessarily impacting the true efficiency of the house by saying, I think we need to raise our value to this level. What I tend to focus on are, if you look at like the insulation, air barrier and insulation installation table in the code, it's really, if people are familiar with the Energy Star program, it's really came out of the thermal enclosure checklist of the Energy Star program. And when you read it, however, it's not exactly clear how to implement it in the field. And a lot of people don't realize that it's a mandatory requirement. So what I've worked on a lot is trying to rewrite the language in that table, for example, to make it more clear how to actually execute it in the field so that people are successful at achieving three air changes per hour requirements that the energy code has. Now, we can argue if three air changes is the right number or not, but if we can't repeatably actually achieve three air changes per hour because people don't understand what they have to do to achieve that, that's a problem to me. And getting that mainstream is what Build Tank's all about there. One example of that, in that table, it says you need to seal the joint between the wall and the top plate at exterior walls. In essence, you need to seal your drywall to the top plate. When it says exterior walls, one builder says thinks it's, if you have a square house, just the four insulated exterior walls. But what it really means is that you need to seal the drywall to the top plate where that top plate is adjacent to the unconditioned ventilated attic space. So it's interior and exterior top plates that are adjacent to the unconditioned space. And without that level of clarity, people interpret it in different ways and it doesn't get implemented. So you bring the perspective of seeing these well-intentioned details be misapplied. Is that coming from which type of experience with Raider provider as a builder or more recent experience? Where have you seen more of this go wrong? It basically comes from our experience, my experience working with builders, trying to implement either programs or codes. And I think one of the things that I realized pretty early on is that there's so much similarity between Energy Star, Energy Code, DOE Zero Energy Ready Homes, Lead for Homes, NGBS. They're trying to do the same thing. I always look at the things that are similar and can be executed 
for all of those things. So early on, I think really when the 2009 IACC came into effect in certain jurisdictions in Colorado, because we're a home rule state, meaning that every jurisdiction can adopt their own code. And in the Denver metro area, we have about 30 jurisdictions. So literally you can be across the street from each other and be on different codes. But when the 2009 code came in, builders tend to focus on the prescriptive compliance option, which is using the R value table in the code. And it jumped up to an R20 wall. And so builders were really concerned about, especially large production builders, how are we going to re-engineer all of our product? How are we going to make it go from a two by four wall to a two by six wall to be able to get an R20 in that assembly there? And what we were able to realize and actually implement was that we could do a trade-off. If we used an energy modeling approach for compliance with the code, we could do a trade-off. And a trade-off basically means I'm going to do something less in one area of the house, and I'm going to do something more in another area of the house in order to keep a balanced energy equation or end product for that particular building. So at that time, the air leakage rate was seven air changes per hour. And the builders that we were building with were building at about three to two and a half and three air changes per hour. So we could trade off house tightness for staying with a two by four wall, R15 maybe in that wall assembly, and also get them to begin to implement whole house control mechanical ventilation because even in the 2009 IECC, that sound building science principle of build tight and ventilate right is wrapped into the code. So we're creating a better performing house overall with less R value, but tighter. So if you think roughly half of your energy is moving by conduction out through the walls and whatnot, and half of it's moving with air leakage, with air, very roughly speaking, but we're helping builders build a significantly better house and saving them or giving them an opportunity to prolong the economic part of re-engineering all their plan sets to a two by six wall by the time the next code is implemented there. Learning that early on and working with builders to continue to build tight and whatnot, you're seeing how the thermal enclosure checklist or the code requirements are trying to be implemented. And you're seeing how builders are interpreting the codes or the program requirements. And you're trying to help educate them about what it actually means and what they actually should be doing to create a house that performs there. Across the span of your work, energy modeling is probably a large part of it. And you've probably seen some significant changes since you're first involved recently to even what may be coming in the future. Can you talk a little bit towards that? My first foray into energy modeling was when I got laid off from that first production builder I worked with. And I started working with that SOCTEC program. And we were using a DOS version of Remrate. Remrate was created locally here in Boulder, Colorado. And when I became an energy rater, Eastar Colorado actually had created their own software to do the HERS rating calculation, the energy rating index calculation. And we would fill out a form and fax it in and some faximatic 
reader was able to read the data off the facts and put it into the software. And then <laughs> the next version was actually inputting it ourselves. But then when we left Eastar Colorado as our provider and became our own provider, Remrate was up and running with a true desktop version of their software. And unfortunately for Remrate, they got acquired by a huge corporation. And there was concern in the industry that the large corporation didn't understand our industry and potentially didn't have the best interest of our industry in its heart. And because Remrate was like a minuscule line on their revenue sheet, that they could turn off the software at any time they wanted to. And where would that leave our industry? Because at that time, Remrate was probably 90% market share. I don't think we at the time, Energy Logic, were the only ones that were concerned about that, but we did look for alternatives. And eventually, it's interesting to me that Energy Gauge never really took that market opportunity, I think, there and grew further outside of Florida, really. But Ecotrope did take that opportunity. And nowadays, Ecotrope, they've become the market leader in the energy software there. Remrate is struggling to keep up, and it will be interesting to see if they hold on or not. But we had the same situation we had before. All our eggs are in one basket, in essence, with Ecotrope software. So it will be interesting to see if another software comes about that can compete so that if something unforeseen happens with the Ecotrope software, that the industry can continue to move on and move forward. I guess the other interesting thing, you might remember that ResNet was talking about trying to make the engine a single engine to do the calculation and then have different interfaces there. I think that's still a viable solution to this issue because one of the things that is very difficult to actually implement but actually talk about is the difference when you model a house in one software versus another software, you often get different results and you shouldn't. That would take that out of the equation, I would think, if we had one single engine that's doing the energy modeling. But ResNet has a software consistency task force and group, but it doesn't seem to be very successful at creating alignment between these different softwares there. So there's still a lot of questions about how well the softwares are doing, how accurate they are. And in essence, right now, it seems like we just have to have faith that they're doing what they should be doing. That's interesting. Is there any back-checking going on about the software to say, okay, we did this calculation? Is that what ResNet looks at is monitoring a home in the real world that was rated and then figuring out how close those models come? ResNet hasn't done that. I know that Remrate did a study years ago and that they found that their software was actually pretty accurate. I don't know if any of the other softwares have done that or not. Interesting. Just take it one step further. These softwares are getting involved in energy modeling for code compliance, but there's no oversight by IECC or anybody about how they build their model to generate the result for a cost compliance report for the simulated performance path of compliance 
or even the UA compliance approach, which a lot of people might know as ResCheck, but ResCheck is just a software like Ecotrop's software that does UA compliance approach only. So I anticipate, and I don't know if this will happen, but I anticipate that ResNet is going to step in and be an oversight organization for code compliance software, as well as energy rating index software. That's interesting. So my next question for you, and I imagine Bill's going to want to close the show out here because we've talked for a while. Yeah. (laughs) Where do you see the future of building science and energy rating and things like that going? What do you see? Because you've been doing this for a while. I imagine you have some thoughts on that. I think that building science is continuing to be more and more wrapped into codes. And we have to think of the codes as a family of codes. And I think that the energy code is our stepping stone into the building science. But when you think about energy efficiency and why they're asking for more and more exterior continuous insulation, we have to go to the IRC to understand its benefit from a vapor transport perspective and reducing condensation on that first condensing surface and whatnot. So we have to use the codes as this family of codes and see the building science that's wrapped into that. So I think building science will continue to drive that forward. But I do feel like we need some type of national curriculum that's in essence mandated or given to every architecture school, every engineering school, every construction management school, so that everybody's talking the same language here and has at least that basic building science understanding there, because it seems like it's very difficult to move forward without everybody on the same page. I'm going to add in their building trade schools also, yeah, because if the people putting the building up don't understand how or why, they generally don't care about things nearly as much. Yes, for sure. Bill and I have been involved for years with a trainer's conference for HVAC trainers that HVAC Excellence puts on. And I recently started looking around thinking, hey, maybe there should be something similar for buildings trades teachers. And what this conference does is it brings trainers together every year. They get to learn about new technologies in the industry, maybe if they're a new trainer. And I can't find anything like that in the building trades industry. I haven't unable to come across anything. Are you aware of anything like that? I am involved in a small project that is trying to develop video-based training that those types of educators can use, but I'm not aware of either a train the trainer or a conference for these people to come to, to learn more about things. That seems like a big gap in the industry to me. Yeah, I agree. My guess is in the future, building science will continue to play a large role. And this intersection of efficiency and building resiliency will play a bigger role. I have a role through a contract with Boulder County in the Marshall Fire. I'm the new homes building advisor for the Marshall Fire. And what I'm seeing is this real interesting overlap between fire resiliency and energy efficiency. And in the same way, energy efficiency and 
severe wind events, hurricane zones and whatnot. So you might have heard of the Fortified program that IBHS does. They also have a wildfire prepared home program. But these severe weather events cause millions and millions of dollars of destruction in our economy and in our lives. And if we are rebuilding and we're rebuilding in a more energy efficient way, often with very minor tweaks, we're rebuilding more resilient homes to future events. And you talk to the experts on fire and whatnot, it's that we're not going to have another fire. It's like, when are we going to have the next fire? And in areas that have already burned, they're worried about it reburning and burning down. So we need to rebuild to better our economy, to better the people that are rebuilding, to better the communities, which means to me, efficiency and resiliency is going to push this forward, hopefully. Very interesting. Amazing to get to talk with you. I never knew your full background. I'm very impressed by it. Not that you're trying to impress us, but you did. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, Robbie. If people want to get a hold of you, where can they find out more about you and where can they get a hold of you at? Buildtankinc.com. Awesome. Buildtankinc.com. Very good. That will be in the show notes. Thank you, sir. Yeah. And Bill, I'm going to ask you to be on my podcast next. So we'll have to make a date. Can't wait for it. Yeah. Thank you, Robbie, for coming on the show today. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. You can reach out to us at marketing at truetechtools.com if you have any questions. I also host the Res Talk podcast. That's R-E-S-T-A-L-K, one word. Just search in your podcast app for Res Talk. You can learn more about it. And that's actually some of the overlapping area where Robbie's and my worlds overlap. <laughs> for an overlapping area, that makes a lot of sense. The Building HVAC Science Podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. In full disclosure, I'm a co-owner of True Tech. The opinions voiced are those of my guests or myself, depending on who is speaking, of course. If you're in the market for any tools or test instruments that we speak about in the podcast, take a look at truetechtools.com, my company, T-R-U-T-E-C-H-T-O-O-L-S.com. See what we carry. And you can use the offer code HVACBS for a nice discount. There's a lot of other great trade-related resources and influences out there, including HVACR School, HVAC Shop Talk, Stephen Reardon, HVAC Reefer Guy, Tool Pros, Service Business Mastery, Quality HVAC, HVAC Overtime, HVACR Videos, HomeDiagnosis.tv, AC Service Tech, MeasureQuick, HVAC Chicks, and the Misfits of HVAC, as well as the HVAC Grapevine. Let me make sure to add that one because that is one where my colleague Eric Kaiser takes part in every week with Chris Hughes and Michael Chianfraco. Anyway, great bunch of people out there in the industry. Love sharing the information. Hope you get something from this and take care. And please come back again to listen to Building HVAC Science.